Empower Radio presents The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. So if you care about your health and the health of our world, of the environment, today's show is sure to inspire you. So imagine every day we're hit by a tidal wave of information, including a great deal of traumatic information about the fate of Mother Earth. As our web of life becomes tattered and torn, it's easy to become disconnected from our emotions, our bodies, each other, and the truth. Our guest today suggests that we can only be sane and healthy by reconnecting with these things. Our inner and outer lives are interconnected. Healing ourselves will require us to reweave the web of life around us and move from trauma to transcendence. Nice, huh? I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self as I introduce our guest. Psychologist and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Mary Pfeiffer, was born in the Ozarks and grew up in rural Nebraska. She marched for civil rights in Kansas City in 1965, and she has participated in actions for peace, gender equality, gay rights, and international human rights all of her life. As a psychologist, she worked with victims of torture and with Amnesty International's Urgent Action Network. Her most recent advocacy has been for social and environmental justice. She is the author of nine, nine, nine books, including her first, Reviving Ophelia, which was one of three New York Times bestsellers, and her most recent, The Green Boat, Reviving Ourselves in Our Capsized Culture. She has worked as a therapist and adjunct professor and is a contributing writer for The New York Times. She lives in Nebraska with her husband, Jim. And with her children and grandchildren nearby, I am really honored beyond words to welcome you to our show. Welcome, Mary. Thank you very much. I'm real happy to be on. Oh, thank you. You know, I just love your work. I have loved your work since the early years. I don't know how many copies of Reviving Ophelia I've purchased and given mm-hmm. to friends and clients and just all over the place. And so I'm really just thrilled that you've written this light latest book. Um, mm-hmm. Many of my friends are really going to pick up this show, listen to it, go out and buy this book. Um, they, they're just thrilled that I'm having you on the show as well. So I'm excited mm-hmm. to have this conversation. But Mary, I have a traditional question that I usually Absolutely start off happy. our show with. And that is, what does all things connected mean to you? Well, I'm really happy to hear that question because, to me, that's one of the more interesting and important questions for the moment. Um, I'm a Buddhist, so when I think of that, I think of Thich Nhat Hanh and interbeing and inter-are. And um, at a cognitive level, I understand the concept very well. But I think that's a concept that has, um, for me, different aspects. For example... 
what it means in terms of how I behave toward the world is that I, I really do my best, and I'm, I'm an ordinary person with my grumpy days and so on, but I, I really do my best to relate to the world as if every living being that I come in contact is worthy of regard. And uh, that's what interconnection means just every day walking around the world. Um, then the other thing is, it's a felt sense. It's, it's a felt sense. Um, like, for example, the easiest way to feel that sense for me is to simply lie down on the ground and feel the earth um, under my, my body, my whole body, and look up at the sky. And I, I can really orchestrate those moments pretty easily anymore where I can feel just a tremendous sense of I'm part of something vast and, and mysterious and marvelous. Um, and it's a felt sense holding a baby or being out. I was just out with the Sandhill Cranes on Tuesday night last week. And it was a record night. There were almost 400,000 cranes in the sky. And it's impossible to stand in a crane blind on the Platte River and hear the call of those cranes and, and see them form a river of cranes in the Platte River and not feel a deep sense of connection to time and to all other living beings and so on. So it's a very big word, and we could actually talk about it the whole hour, which I'm guessing we will in one way or another. Mm. Well, you know, that that interconnectedness and using the example of the cranes, I, I love to talk about them because it's such a miracle to imagine their journey and how literally they come and, and migrate through this beautiful state in that Platte River. And of course, we also know that that river is in danger, their habitat, the crane's habitat is in danger. And that brings us, you're right, we could talk about this for the whole hour. And I love those examples. We were talking about the full moon before the show. But this brings us to the conversation of the book. Your new, latest book is called The Green Boat, Reviving Ourselves in Our Cab-Sized Culture. And we're talking about the environment and what is going on and and really how do we move from real despair when we look at the the truth yeah. and the facts to a sense of hope and i love how you wrote the book i just want to say this for our listeners so that they can really get a feel for what this book is and and i recommend it highly but you you begin with our denial as humanity and really paint a dark story for us but then you move us and with your your beautiful expertise in in psychology and working through trauma and healing it comes through as a culture and we're looking at who we are as a humanity now and how do we wake up to this global warming or this environmental crisis and move into action. So I love how the path just weaves us from really feeling it to, okay, now what can I do? So let's start at the beginning, Mary. Let's define the problem. What's this issue and what do you mean about the denial? Well, for decades in this country, uh, we've had this crazy debate about is man-made climate change happening? And in fact, we've had it in our state legislature quite recently in Nebraska. In spite of about 35 years of 
almost unanimity on the part of the world scientific community and continual scientific evidence to buttress up every other earlier claim made. Uh, Now, I think the main function of that argument has been to allow us to talk about everything but what needs to be done. It's an argument that has diverted us from the real issues. There's no issue there. There's no issue there at all. But it's kept us from really having to face our own denial. And I'm very sympathetic with humanity for not wanting to take on this problem. Most of us, and I'm one of those people, when we first really get it and understand how how seriously our planet is threatened and how immediate that threat's ramifications are for our future, um, we're overwhelmed. And I remember when I read Bill McKibben's book, Earth, E-A-A-R-T-H, um, Earth has a new spelling in his book because he argues in that book that the Earth as we have known it all these millennium is already gone, that we're living on a new planet with a very different climate. And um, when I first read it, I remember just two or three days just walking around in despair. And my grandchildren came to visit during that point, and we were out picking raspberries, and I was just thinking you know, what will their futures be like? In fact, what will my future be like? Because we're not talking about 50 years from now. We're talking about, at this point, five years from now or right now in terms of vast changes to the global ecosystem. And uh, the despair is real. It's very deep. At some point in the book, I call it a primal panic. We're losing our mother, and our mother is the earth. It's the great nourisher that sustains us all. And it's almost too big a panic to face. But uh, if we don't face it, we can't fix it. It's impossible to change something we we can at some level face. And so I I really tried. I I know a lot about trauma. I've worked with trauma and been real interested in it all my life. And I I did a lot of trauma work with refugees and wrote a book about that. I, I know how desperate human beings can be and how many terrible things can happen to people and they can heal. But I also know that empowerment and moving away from grief into something um, more resilient is a, a matter of action. It doesn't happen because of talk. It happens because of action. And so... It just happened at the time I read McKibben's book that I had a friend um, who was over here pruning trees for me. His name was Brad. He's a young person. He wears overhauls, and at that time he had a long, long ponytail down to his waist. And I liked him to work over at my place because he and I'd have good talks about the environment. He was a musician and an artist and just really a sincere citizen. And uh, he and I were talking about Bill McKibben's book. And and Brad said, well, let's start a group. Let's do something. And so we did. We we asked a few of our friends to come to a meeting at my house. And um, we, we got together with a few people. And the next week we had quite a few more people. And we started to put together a group. This is in 2010. And it was just at the time the Trans-Canada KXL pipeline was um starting to be on people's radar screens in our state. And one of the things our group wanted to do 
was pick something to work on that we could actually uh, plan and build a series of actions around. In other words, living in Nebraska, it wouldn't have been a very good cause for us to take on increasing salinity in the oceans. Uh, We needed to pick out something local to work on. And I like local for a couple reasons. One, uh, it's where you have the resources and know what the deal is. And two, it's really where you have the passion. You want to take care of your own place and your own people. So it's it's a real good place to to work. Uh, It doesn't cost you a lot of money to go there. and, And you can work... If you can figure out a way to work, you can work sustainably for the rest of your life on a set of issues that you decide to tackle. So anyway, um, this group then worked for, took us about four years. And from that group, many other state leaders um, formed groups of their own. I don't want to in any way say our group deserves credit for stopping the Keystone XL. There are many other groups that worked very hard, such as Farmers Union and Bold Nebraska and the Sierra Club and the Citizens Climate Lobby and so on. But Nebraska ended up being a really critical player in the fight to stop the Keystone XL. For one thing, we're right in the middle of the route. We were in a red state, all the states the KXL was going to go through were red states. And we were the only red state that put up a fight. And so the East Coast organizations like 350.org and a lot of the other big national, international organizations were looking for something to focus on, too. And when they realized there were local people in Nebraska that they could back, a lot of big national groups jumped in to help us fight. So it really ended up being an interesting uh, set of struggles to, to stop the Keystone XL. And um, one of the things that's really interesting about that fight is when we started it, we had absolutely no expectation we would win. We were a small group of people in my living room uh, that didn't know very much about the environment, didn't know much about um, uh, organizing uh to stop something like a fossil fuel company. And believe me, if you want to know how the world works, try stopping an international, rich and powerful, politically well-connected fossil fuel corporation. It's really a lesson in how things work. But we did it. We didn't do it because we could stop it. We did it because none of us were psychologically capable of, of letting it happen to us without a fight. We weren't willing to sit passively by while somebody came in and possibly destroyed the water in our state. Uh, And then the other thing is, we were all people whose antidote to despair was action. And we we really wanted to do this, not just because we, we felt like we should and couldn't not do it, but also we all had a pretty good sense that we'd feel better if we did it. Did it. And one of the things that was really interesting, we had a, a nice meeting at my house, that first meeting, and the pattern continued. We're still meeting. It's now been six years since we've been getting together. We still meet, uh, not only at my house, but we take turns having potlucks. But we have wine. We have um, victory stories. We do a lot of things to have a really good dinner, and we have some social time where we can connect with each other on a lot of levels besides just our work. But we always, uh, at these meetings, 
we have an agenda. I'm the, the leader of this group, and and we get through that agenda. We share information about what's going on, and we end with a new action, you know. And when we leave, we're happier. That first meeting, when people left, I found myself doing the dishes in my kitchen, and I was humming. And I realized I haven't hummed in a long time, and I'm humming tonight because I finally figured out a way to get to work on this problem and not just um, stew in my own adrenaline about it. So the book is, is um, a kind of a guidebook to effective action for environmentalists and tactics that work well in not only red states, but in most states. Um, and the other thing it is, though, is a, is a mental health. Um, I make a mental health argument that if you want to be whole and, and happy in 2016, you need to be actively engaged in improving the world. Yeah, and that is one of the things that I really appreciate about the book. And um, your introduction to it was really nice because it really moves us from the mental health piece of people who just literally shut down with that despair and that overwhelm and they can't take in the magnitude of the issues. And when we think we have to go save the world, that sounds really huge. But then you break it down into just this, this awareness moving into action that's right in front of you. And right. you give us examples of really small actions like your daughter and her friends when they were in your living room, just doing small things like taking their cloth bags into the grocery store versus stopping a Keystone pipeline. I mean, not everyone right. can have this right. huge project in their backyard, but that's what I really right. appreciate about the book. Tell us about first the trauma. You label it as trauma. And I, as a psychologist, I completely get that. But I don't know if all of our listeners would say, well, what, what does the crisis of the climate have to do? That's not trauma. I'm not traumatized. Explain how you talk about that in the book, because I think it makes real important sense to our listeners right. to really identify how their neighbors are shutting down when they're out there trying to lead a rally. Right. Well, there's a very good book that helped me think this through, and it's actually the, about the way ordinary Germans were as Hitler came to power. It's called States of Denial. And the author of this is a, a man named Stanley Cohen, who studied how ordinary Germans behaved. Because after the war and even during the war, people said things that, in light of what we now know about Hitler and the Holocaust, sound really crazy, like they could live within a short distance from a, uh, Auschwitz, say, or Auschwitz was in Poland, but, but they could live a short distance from a camp. And they would say, I, I never knew what was going on there, in spite of the fact that they could smell the burning ash of human bodies in the air. Well, it turns out, Cohen said they were in a state of willful ignorance. And what he means by that was they were expected to absorb information that was absolutely too terrifying to handle. And they couldn't ignore it. But yet they couldn't acknowledge it either, because if they acknowledged it, 
they would feel a great deal of internal pressure to do something about it, and they were too afraid to acknowledge it. And I like that phrase, willful ignorance, with climate, because I really believe that's the state we're in right now, that it isn't that Americans don't believe in climate change. It's that the prospects are so terrifying in terms of their implications that they hold in their body their fears about that and and their anger about it and sense of impotence. And maybe they say they don't care. Maybe they say it doesn't matter to them. But but I don't believe that. I, I think that we hold within our body everything we know about the world. And for example, this morning when I woke up and heard the news about Brussels, I, I just, I, I really was in despair about that. And especially, I put it together in my own head. You know, we have such a broken political system right now in this country. And we have the, the terrible sort of rhetoric of this, this current campaign on the Republican side. And we have the um, increasing information about global climate change. Just almost every day, there's a new article. And, and we have the issues around... Um, terrorism and what will happen to Europe, what will happen to all of us. And so there's a part of us that doesn't even want to deal with that. We want to be happy. We want to be in balance and we want to live in a world that we can enjoy and that we can feel some sense of control about. But on the other hand, there's a part of us that knows it is happening. We know it in our bones. And even though we don't acknowledge the despair, even though we don't talk about the despair, it's in our bodies. And it affects our overall um, quality of consciousness, it affects our moods, it affects our satisfaction with life, and so on. And what I, what I really argue in this book is that even though it's a tremendously difficult path, our best men bet in terms of, of psychic survival, awake and with the capabilities of being joyous and sensing our interconnection with all living beings. Our best bet is to face our trauma, experience it fully, talk about it with others, work through it as best we can, but especially work through it by action with others. And if we act, if we're engaged in making a difference, we're less likely to feel uh, biz- that, that trauma because, for one thing, we're busy. We're out actually doing things to make things better. So for many people, uh, that works pretty well. That's always worked for me since I was a little girl. And the people that are engaged in this campaign, it works for pretty well. But in fairness to everybody who is not currently in in the environmental campaign, one of the problems, I think, with the way we hear this news in our, our fear-mongering 24-7 news cycle is that we get a lot of, of information that I call distractional. In other words, it, it, it horrifies us, it depresses us, it leaves us anxious and shaken up and numb with a kind of a feeling of the world's falling apart, but it doesn't actually give us any information that would allow us to make choices and solve our way out of whatever problem we're facing. And so when I think about a problem, and this actually, Julie, may go back to our therapy experience in common. I don't think 
so much what is the problem, but what are the solutions, you know, and, and given this problem and given this set of givens, how do I approach it in a way that I can make a difference, a positive difference? And so one of the things I really look for when I'm listening to the news or, or thinking about my own despair management is what in this vista of things to worry about is there intelligence and information that would allow me to act on behalf of a cause I care about. And we were very lucky to have the Trans-Canada Pipeline because what it did was mobilize Republicans and Democrats. I'm kind of a member of a group of pretty well-educated urban progressives. And one of the things that really shocked us is we always lose in Nebraska. Our causes are never uh, endorsed by our legislature, most of the Nebraska people. But this time around, our first companions in this fight against the Keystone XL were farmers and ranchers. And it's because they understand land and they understand water. And they had a lot at stake in in this particular fight. If the Ogallala Aquifer that we all live upon in Nebraska had been polluted, uh, they can't raise cattle. You can't feed cattle bottled water. You can't irrigate land with water that's got a lot of toxic elements in it. So it was really fun to unite the state. It was really fun to design a set of actions that were fitting to Nebraskans. They needed to be polite. They needed to be um, small scale for the most part. And they needed to be fun. You know, it's very hard to stay engaged over your life as an activist if you're not having a good time. So we had a lot of um, action plans that involved things like At one point, we had a water festival all across the state and invited every little community, every little group to have some kind of action on the same day and broadcast it that celebrated good water in our state. And I forget how many groups we had, maybe 40, maybe 45, but it was enough that it got the legislators' attention, and it was enough that it ended up being good community action for most citizens in the state of Nebraska. And we had something called the Apple Pie Brigade. And when a legislator or governor acted in a way that was good for the people in Nebraska, we'd hold a press conference and give that person an apple pie and congratulate Mm -hmm. them on taking care of the citizens. So we tried to come up. We had a tractor pull at one point out west because a tractor pull for the planet. We tried to come up with catchy and engaging activities that people would enjoy doing if they showed up. We also did some stuff that was really hard. I mean, we went and stood in line for the State Department hearings. We showed up to lobby our legislators, and we did some things that are hard, too. But the fun activities are are really what attracted a lot of people. And it also, Margaret Mead has a line, a good culture has a place for every human gift. And one of the things we tried to do with our environmental movement was have a place for every human gift in our state. And that is a question of if somebody can do art, how could we use that? If they were good on on, um, the Internet and had good technical skills, how could we use that? If they could bake or could buy or were good with children or good speakers, how could we use that skill set? So we always work to find when people would come up to me and say, I really like what you're doing. How can I help? 
I'd always go, well, what do you like to do? What, what are you good at? What would you enjoy doing to make a contribution? And when then we tried to find the right job for that person that they'd really enjoy and be the most helpful to us. Yeah. And, you know, Mary, mm-hmm. it, your inclusiveness and the solutions was brilliant. And I love how you hold all that together. We need to take a quick break and we're going to hear more about how you, our listeners, can turn your need, I'm going to say need, because we're talking about our mental health and our physical health here, into positive actions when we turn. We're talking with Mary Pfeiffer from The Green Boat and more when we return. We'll be right back. Have you ever lost a cat? And have you ever wanted to get your cat back after you lost it? Hi there, I'm Andrew Hoffman. I went on this website called inventnow.org. Then I decided to make an invention of my own. It's called the Lost Cat Magnet Invention. So you can get your cat back after you lost it. Just turn it on and lost cats stick to it. That's a good cat. If your cat was hiding up in a tree, it won't be up a tree anymore. It will be stuck to the lost cat magnet. And sometimes they fly toward you in the air. Just listen to one satisfied cat. See, that's proof. You should go to the inventnow.org website too. But just remember one thing. Don't do a lost cat magnet. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Come to the forest. It's a place not so far away. A place where you don't have to mow the lawn. Or babysit. I saw lizards and squirrels and bugs. Ladybugs, caterpillars. It's really cool, actually. A place where you don't have to make time for free time. Lots and lots of kinds of species here. Out here, you may even meet the mysterious creature known as the other you. The enchanted you. It's magic what flowers do. The adventurous you. My favorite tree. Yes. That one. The free-to-be-me you. (laughs) Ask your parents to take you to this not-so-far-away place. Come to the forest, where the other you lives. But first, stop by discovertheforest.org, a public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Do you get tired of styling your hair every day? And do you want a good hairstyle every day? Hi, I'm Sarah Schuster. I went on a website called inventnow.org, and after that, I decided to invent something too. Something called the Insta-Do. Just imagine, you just put it over your head like a helmet does, and you pick your hairstyle with the buttons on the side, and you can have instant hairstyle in seconds. People like it. People like Jeff Bart. I like it. And people like Kenneth. It's this helmet thing, and it fits over your head, and it's great. Thank you, Kenneth. You should go to inventnow.org, and it could help you come up with your own invention. After all, look at me on the radio now. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. 
Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. I'm Julie Crawl. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today and want to share it with others, or maybe just listen to it again, please visit our website, thedrjulieshow.com, where you'll find the archives and also the listing of upcoming guests. And also stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. And Mary Pfeiffer and I would love to hear your comments, love to hear from you, anything that moves you from our conversation. So I want to give you her website as well. And you can find her at marypiper.com. That's M-A-R-Y-P-I-P-H-E-R. Excuse me, it's .net, marypiper.net. And also look for her fan page on Facebook. So, Mary, here we are. And you took on a really big project. And you weave that project in the book, the story of how all of that unfolded, with also really rich dialogue of how others are waking, how others are becoming activated and coming up with what you call the transcendent response. And one of the things that I, again, I appreciate so many things about the book, but one of the things that you um, created a term for was the new healthy normal. And Mm -hmm. with that response and, and really writing about it, you also talk about groups working together, our inner connection, bringing people together, and then moving not just from an action, but really moving into that transcendent response. Do you want to explain that to our listeners? Sure, sure. Uh, Well, Durkheim had a lovely uh, phrase for the uh, experience people have when they're in a group that's working and doing good in the world. And he called it collective effervescence. And I really like that because our group over time, uh, we we grew very close to each other. And we, we take great joy in getting together. We feel personally very close to each other. We We all have a sense that this is a cause we would die for if necessary, but that we don't have to die for it. Instead, we can have the wonderful experience of working together to make good things happen. And we've never, ever been slowed down. By defeat. Um, if we had a defeat, we would figure out a way to make it uh, workable in our favor. And no matter what happened, we would we would briefly process it if it were a defeat, figure out a way to turn it to our advantage, and then move on to our next action. But groups in general, David Brooks in the New Yorker cited a study that joining a group that meets once a month produces the same increase in happiness as doubling your income. And, you know, this is a culture where people are very busy. They, they say they don't have time for, for example, to join a group or to be an uh, engaged citizen and activist. And uh, yet what we find is that people who are engaged have more energy and feel better. And it doesn't really take time to have relationships. In other words, if you're too busy to have relationships, you're too busy to enjoy your life. Um, the trick is finding those relationships and figuring out a structure to, to, to uh, work within a group to make sure that things stay real positive. And I want to address a couple things about that with our group. One is uh, 
we didn't have we didn't have a lot of ain't it awful talk. I mean, it was just something that we we knew not to do. And if somebody started to go to to the ain't it awful and this is terrible, and one of us would very quickly steer the group back in a more positive. We stayed positive. We stayed action oriented. We stayed focused on what we could do, not what we couldn't do. And another thing was. Our group was by invitation only. Um, over the course of the six years we've been in group, we probably had 50 or 60 people come and go. And our biggest meetings are probably around 25 people. We've had meetings with three people show up. It's just varied a lot depending on what was going on and, and the weather and, and so on and so on. But but the reason I mentioned it was by invitation only is we didn't want a troublemaker in the group. One of the things that can really sink a group is getting a difficult person in the group that argues and, and brings a group down and, and is causing trouble between members. And we just were real careful that we didn't, we didn't have people like that in our group because we knew that the work we were going to do would require a lot of all of us and would, would really require that we, we really liked each other and trusted each other and got along. And also that we could keep secrets together, that we, we could make some kind of plan that depended on action without prior notification and that we could actually follow through and, and do that properly as a group. So that's one thing. I think sometimes people think that the way to be a really good person is to have a totally open group. And it may work for some people. Um, and we were flexible. And we, for example, one thing we did was when people would say, I'd like to join your group, we'd go, well, come see our group. Come one time and we'll show you how it works and you can form a group on your own. And we would sometimes invite people into our group that had real special expertise or that someone said, this person would be wonderful in our group, we'd take their word for it. So it wasn't that we were a totally closed group and didn't have new members. We had new members all the time. We have new members. We had a new member last month come. But we were careful about the new members. And that's real important because I learned this as a therapist too. You know, one person in a group therapy session that's real difficult can, can torpedo a group. So the other thing is we always tried to meet in homes have a meal or outside and have a meal so that people didn't have to, for me at least, I don't like meetings. I like parties and I like get togethers and I like picnics. And many of the people in our group, they work long days. They had some of them commutes and we didn't want to have them sitting, drinking bad coffee in an office building any more than they had to. So that was a part of the way that we kept our group going is people wanted to come because they knew they have a real good time. Yeah, brilliant strategy. You talked about that being fun and and we need that. We need that connection that's not just really those like the bad news. When you're focusing on the bad news, um, actually what you're doing is bringing the strategies to move us out of that place of that focus and into more positive intention. And it sounds like you really shared that vision, you shared the mission, and and you you shared the passion within the group. Right. And one of the things that happened, of course, is as we worked together, we created more energy. You know, it's interesting, but the belief that you're powerless is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you tell yourself you can't do anything, uh, you won't do anything to change a situation. And so by acting as if 
we believed we had power in this situation where most people didn't feel they had power. We created power. And we can create, anyone can create, power out of thin air by acting as if he or she has power. It's just really interesting to see that happen. And we didn't start out powerful. We didn't start out particularly even knowing what we were doing. But we start out with agreement to act as if we have power. One of the things that's real interesting to me is if somebody wants to defeat you, uh, they say something's inevitable. Uh, Well, you know, there's no point working on this or that. It's inevitable. Well, nothing is inevitable. All kinds of things that looked inevitable turned out to not be so inevitable, whether it was um, uh, the civil rights movement or the abolition of slavery or um, the end of Hitler and the Third Reich. Many things that looked inevitable didn't turn out to be because other people stepped forward and said no. So I think it's really important to remember that things are only over when when we give up. And and that was a very strong belief in, in our group is we aren't giving up. You know, this is not settled because we aren't giving up. And no matter what the president decides, no matter what our governor decides, it's not over till we give up and we aren't giving up. So we just kept going. We just kept going. You know, John Hansen of the Farmers Union here in Nebraska is a man I respect very much. And one of the things he said about activism is Activism isn't like planting corn, where you throw some seeds in a field and walk away. It's like milking cows. It's something you do every day, over and over again, for the rest of your, your life, as a, as a dairy farmer, say. And that's the way activism is. You just think of one little thing to do here and one little thing to do here, and take some wildflowers down to a uh, office of a senator, or make a phone call, or show up. One of the things our group did is we all volunteered to be speakers in our group speaking bureau. And that meant anybody who wanted a little education about our environmental work or the Keystone XL, all they had to do was get a hold of us. And we'd have somebody show up at their Rotary Club or their their church group, etc., and talk. And an interesting thing happened besides just stopping the Keystone XL, which I think we've stopped. I don't think it'll ever be an issue again in this country. And we may eventually even be able to succeed in closing down the, the tar sands of Alberta. It looks like things may go that way. So, but um, one of the interesting things that happened besides that is we created a lot of interest in the environment in this state. And we, we started a dialogue that has ended up being in play, and the language we were using six years ago is now being used on the floor of our legislator. I remember somebody saying that if you want to change something, change your language, and five years later, that language that you were able to change will be part of the broader culture. And so five years ago, six years ago, we started talking about um, alternative fuel. We started talking about um, different kinds of land use. We started talking about, we put solar panels, Jim and I put solar panels on our roof as a community education project. We talked about um, water And now we have a lot of people in the state, all over the state, that are much more engaged in the the fight against um, carbon 
and fight against fossil fuels. We're talking about divestment now in this state. And it's, it's been a wonderful thing to see that language change, not only for us, but for the people of our state. Yeah, great example. And um, you have made a lasting impact on the state and the country and, and globally. We know that, too. I mean, these these issues matter. Mary, for our listeners today who are out there thinking, well, I, I don't have a tar sands. I don't have the Keystone pipeline right here. You give some examples. And I know you've probably heard what different organizations, groups, neighborhoods, different communities are doing that make a difference, even the small things. Can you give us some examples? I love the idea of baking a pie and taking that to a legislator or picking some wildflowers and taking it. What else can our listeners be doing that really does make a difference? By the way, one thing that isn't happening in this culture is most of us have no idea how many people there are out there that are working on environmental issues. Uh, Paul Hawkins, um, I think this was eight or nine years Mm -hmm. ago, found two million groups around the world were working Mm -hmm. locally to, to fight for environmental causes. And one of the reasons people feel kind of weak and powerless is they don't have a sense for how many other people would join them in a fight and are fighting all over the world for the the rights of Mother Earth. But to just take a a real quick set of issues almost everywhere that people can tackle, one of them is clean energy. There's issues in almost every community about the portfolio of energy companies, how much coal, how much um, nuclear, how much natural gas versus how much wind and solar and geothermal. So if you have any sort of uh, scientific bent or interest in energy, now is a wonderful time to be involved. Another issue, and Flint's a good example of this, is almost everywhere in this country, water is polluted. It's polluted by fertilizer or animal confinement runoff. It's polluted by industrial chemicals. It's polluted by city and urban waste, etc. So there's water issues everywhere. There's also, almost everywhere in this country, a local food movement. And distributive energy and local food are, are two of the really long-term solutions, I think. There's also transportation issues and, and, and weaning Americans off their cars and, and toward um, bicycles and public transportation. So there's all kinds of ways to work with, with transportation. In our own homes, most people recycle by now. I won't mention that to your listeners. But there's things you can do like rain barrels and also um, composting. And also, for example, right now, uh, if you have any uh, room to, to plant things, planting uh, plants and making sure that there's, uh, for example, uh, plants that are good for pollinators or plants that are really good for um, diversity of animals in the area. So there's just a lot of ways that people can work. One of the things to think about, I think, if you're choosing what to work in, is education, working with children and environmental education. If you're musical, you can offer your services singing or playing an instrument at, at places where people are gathering for a good cause. But one of the things to think about, I think, when you're, you're thinking about what to do is what are you passionate about and what are your gifts? And, and then start working 
you know, a group sounds sophisticated when I talk about it as something we've done for 66 years and so on. But actually, all you have to have to start a group is one other person and a cup of tea. And you've got a group. And so almost everyone can call up somebody and say, I know you're concerned about things too. Let's meet someplace for a cup of tea and talk over what we can do locally. And you started a group. That's what Brad and I did. We were standing around saying things bothered us, and we decided, well, let's get some people together. So most people can do it. And if they're busy, what they'll find is that even though they have maybe one more thing on their schedule, they're benefiting so much from it in terms of their sense of uh, power, you know, growing power and energy and hope and community, that it's it's more than uh, worth the time they're spending. Yeah. You know, the whole focus on we are a global economy, we are a global community, and yet your book really talks about the local and, and many of the other experts in the field are really bringing us back home to, to our neighborhoods, just what is right in front of us and begin there. And that's enough. That's, that's, that's enough to change the world is begin right at home. You know, before we run out of time, I want to make sure we give you an opportunity to share what the green boat means. Our listeners, if they haven't oh. read the book, are going to go, what's the green boat? So oh, share with yeah. us. Well, it, it's both an actual place. It's it's the land my husband and I live on. And we're very fortunate. We have 1.1 acre land. It's in Lincoln, and it abuts a city park with a lake. And it faces east, so I could, I'm up early. I can see the sunrise every day, and we can see the moonrise. But it also, uh, because it's on a lake, we see a lot of birds fly over. And so the green boat is is our land. We we call it the green boat. But it also stands for all the people and animals and living beings in our lives that we try to take care of. Uh, Jim and I are kind of co-captains of our green boat, and we try to make decisions ac- accordingly. And it also stands in a funny way for this whole planet. And we're a green boat out in a very non-green universe, as far as we know. And we're the only green boat. And so it it really stands also for Mother Earth and our need to take very good care of the big green boat of Earth. Mm, Beautiful. So we just have a few minutes left in this program, Mary. And I just am curious if you have one message to really deliver to our listeners and get it out into the world, what would that be? Well, I think global climate change is essentially an ethics problem. And it has to do with um, not having a sufficient moral imagination. Um, you know, Gregory Bateson said the, univer- the, the unit of survival is the organism and his or her environment. And that's exactly true. And it goes back to the, the beautiful title of your show. We're all interconnected. And, and if we don't, uh, at some level, act on that deep and true interconnection, we won't be able to make it. Um, and not only is that functional for us and practical and realistic, as any scientist will tell you, scientists know we're interconnected. In fact, scientists and especially physicists sound increasingly like Buddhist monks in the current day. 
But the other thing about that deep felt sense of interconnection is the great bliss that we feel when we sense it and feel like we're, we're working as part of a, a living whole. You know, going back just for one minute to the cranes, when we were in that crane blind, um, I felt, as did everyone in that blind, a sense of wonder and awe. And nobody, there were maybe 20, 25 people in that blind, nobody was moving by the end. Nobody was saying a word. And, and you could literally hear people's breathing, which had changed a great deal over the course of the evening, listening to the cranes and being on the river at sunset. And um, I realized every year, when I go out almost every year to see the cranes, and when I leave, I always say the same thing. I always say, this was the best year ever. And I realize that I say that because wonder as an emotional state is not parsable. In other words, you can't say, I 90% feel wonder. You feel wonder or you don't. And the reason at any given moment the current state of wonder is the best you've ever experienced is because you're experiencing it at that moment. And so the, the really important thing, I, I think, is not to appeal to sense, people's sense of duty, but people's need for beauty and a deep sense of connection to Mother Earth, because we all know that, that we have that deep need and that it's enormously satisfying to figure out ways to meet our need. Mm. Right there, that last few sentences is worth all of the dialogue in the book and the show, it is so inspirational and, and, and so true that, that wonder and beauty. And if you aren't moved by the despair of what's happening, be moved by the beauty. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your wisdom and, and writing your books for, for the whole world. You, you are such a beautiful person on the planet right now. Thank you so much. I enjoyed your show, and I hope we meet sometime. We share the same state. We do. We're just neighbors. I'm going to make that happen. And so, listeners, the Green Book, Mary Pfeiffer takes on the some of the planet's greatest problems, but with the skills and giftedness of her incredible experience and expertise as a therapist, go out and look for the book, The Green Boat, Reviving Ourselves in Our Capsized Culture. And thank you so much for tuning in. Again, you can find the archive and who's coming up on thedrjulieshow.com. And I'd be ever so grateful if you connect up, link, sign up for our Facebook page and our email. So together, we're creating connections for the greater good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now.